To the extent we're spending 18% of our national gross domestic product on healthcare, if you're telling me a third of what we spend is actually inappropriate, wasteful, ineffective, and generates no benefit, that's basically saying 6% of our entire GDP, you could go out into a parking lot and set on fire and get more benefit from it than we're getting today. You'd at least get heat and light. That's Marcus Osborne of Walmart, our guest today on the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. So why is Walmart getting into healthcare? Well, consider this. Each week, 50% of Americans will step foot inside of a Walmart, which sells nearly a quarter of all food in the U.S. The number one item sold in a Walmart? You probably didn't guess bananas. Marcus says Walmart's empowering consumers to make informed decisions about their health and well-being. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Check out our show notes to learn more about our podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor. Read our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. If you'd like to be notified whenever a new episode goes live, feel free to subscribe. Thanks. We hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Sam Glick, partner in the Health and Life Sciences Practice here at Oliver Wyman. We're speaking with Marcus Osborne, who's the Vice President of Health Transformation at Walmart. Uh, Marcus has a fascinating history that I'll let him tell you about, uh, and now he's in Arkansas working to make healthcare better with one of the world's largest companies. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about Walmart, let's talk about you for just a second. What's, what's your story, and how'd you end up doing healthcare at Walmart? Um, that's a, that's a great question. I actually had never sort of intended to do healthcare and certainly not intended to do healthcare at Walmart. Um, my connection to sort of healthcare and Walmart actually came when I was in Harvard business school and was asked, uh, by the individual who was running the health and wellness business at the time to on the side, do a little work around a program, a concept that he was trying to assess around, is it possible to sell, you know, if you, if you sell generics really cheaply, uh, what would be the consumer reaction and, and what would he have to price things to, to drive real volume? And so that was uh, uh, his, his sort of idea was eventually was the $4 program. So that was my sort of entree to, to, to Walmart and healthcare and ended up coming on full time and um, have, have only worked in healthcare since. That's great. We're glad to have you over on this side. We need, we need good minds working on it. Um, we had a discussion several weeks ago now at our Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Summit about kind of redefining health. And I think it's an interesting connection to Walmart. I, I suspect that when many people think about Walmart in healthcare, um, you know, they think about over the years, occasionally we see a news story spike or a service spike, but it's pharmacy first and foremost, Walmart with the $4 generics. We've heard discussion about retail clinics and what happens in Walmart. But it was really interesting, I thought, at the summit as we talked about defining health through the eyes of the consumer, which really means thinking about food and their fitness and their vitamins and really everything uh, that affects their health, not just the care services we deliver. Walmart's role starts to feel a lot bigger, um, or at least its potential role. Tell me a little bit more about that and how you think about Walmart fitting into healthcare. Well, I think, you know, what I would say is, and I think this is the, in some ways, the, the sort of arrogance of, of some of the players in the healthcare system that the way we sort of, when we think about healthcare, we think about 
pharmaceutical products or or you know devices, right? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know, hip implants or stents or you know whatever it might be. Um, but the fundamental reality, the two most prescribed, and I use sort of prescribed in quotes uh, for uh, here, but the two most prescribed therapies, if you if you go to your physician, they aren't drugs, they aren't you know they aren't you know some procedure, they're they're around diet and exercise, and and then probably sleep is the third, and you know if you really think about uh, for us as individuals and and communities, what it's going to take for us to improve our health, uh, maintain our health, uh, you know, enable us to live longer and live better. Um, the you know, quite frankly, the answer is that though, though pharmaceutical products may be part of the answer, they're they're kind of a small part. It is things like food. It is things like enabling kind of people to 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 get out and exercise. And so when I look at things like Walmart selling, you know, almost a quarter of all the food in the U.S. These are sort of fun little scaled facts. We sell more than half, uh, and now with Toys R Us going under, I think it'll be even a much larger number. We sell more than half of all the bicycles in the U.S. Um, so when we sort of think about our ability to impact the health of individuals, the health of communities, and you sort of couple our scale, which is, you know, we we own more real estate than anybody around except for the federal government. And the real estate that we have is is typically at Maine and Central. It's where people live. It's where people um, work. Between our sort of scale and those areas that are that are really about what drive people's health and our and our sort of access to people where we have, you know, more than half of Americans come in our store every given week. You know, our, our sense was we, we whether we sort of are getting credit for it or not, we, we may be actually the most impactful entity in terms of Americans' health, much more than, you know, any health plan, you know, much more than United or the Blues, much more certainly than, you know, I, 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 than, than any kind of health system. I, I've seen sort of the quote from HCA that they account for one in 20 uh, births in the U.S., and they sort of use that as a commentary about their influence on the healthcare of Americans. But I, I think we would sort of argue that because of our geographic access and the breadth of our products and services that we're in, um, there's there's no one that's having a bigger impact or ha- can have a bigger impact on the health of Americans than us. That's pretty exciting. I, I'll t- I want to talk in a minute about the the kind of traditional healthcare side, but uh, I want to stick with this vein uh, for a bit. Walmart's the the largest grocer in the country, as you mentioned. A good portion of Americans are flowing through every week. What are you doing on that front? How Talk to me about how Walmart's positioned as a grocer and and how you help change consumer health preferences. Yeah, you know it's it's a, it's a good that's a good question. I mean, there, there's probably three things. I mean, on the I'll, I'll kind of touch on that last piece. I think there are probably three things that we do that we're focused on that often sort of maybe we don't talk about that, but that we think have are ha- having an enormous impact on improving the health of Americans. The first and most obvious is just simply we bring access to food products that in many instances you had markets that in, in, in individuals and communities they didn't have access to those products. So, you know, that in some community if you think about food deserts, we sort of come in, you know, the breadth of our produce offering, for example, you know, selling f- fresh fruits and vegetables, we might come into a community where they might have only had a small kind of local grocer who didn't really have much of a selection there. So might have sold, you know, a few 
bananas and a couple rough looking apples. Um, but we're able to actually come in and given our sort of scale and ability to, to source efficiently and effectively and manage a logistics network nationally and globally that enables us to, to move, move uh, particularly fresh product around. Um, we help, we help improve access and the access is key. You know, if, if you want to have people eat healthier, you have to give them access first, enable them to actually get the products. The second thing, and I think just as critical, is you have to then actually make those products that you want people to consume more affordable. And um, so when I look and I, I shared a story there around, um, you know, the, the, the fun little fact about Walmart is the most purchased item in our store on a SKU basis is bananas. So, you know, more bananas are sold than any other item. That's a great stat. Um, but the, and so, it, so and I usually I use as an indication to say to the extent we actually believe that Americans are inherently unhealthy and don't have kind of an interest in their health. Well, if that were the case, then the number one item would be, you know, some would be sugar, water, or salty snacks. But it's not the case. It's bananas. But the, the, the more interesting story related to some work we did a number of years ago around um, apple sourcing, where we, we realized that a lot of the costs that we were getting is that we were going through intermediaries and middlemen. And so we started a process um, to engage growers directly. And so went in and uh, and started to engage, particularly in Washington State, and engaged directly with the growers to say, we, we want to buy your product from end to end. And, um, and you know, we're going to take the really good apples, and those are the ones that we're going to kind of sell and bag up and, and just sell apples directly. The ones that get a little bumped up and bruised, well, maybe we can convert them into apple juice or applesauce or whatever it might be. But the result was, in the end, because we went direct, we were, and we were able to get a significantly better cost. You know, doing what Walmart does, when we get a lower cost, we then, you know, when we get an everyday lower cost, we translate that into an everyday lower price. So we lower the price of apples. And what was interesting is without even really kind of going out and telling anybody about it, just simply changing the price in the store, uh, we saw a significant change. And, you know, apples shot up and became one of the most purchased SKUs in the store. So I, so I think for us, the, the second piece is really not just about accessibility, but about, about driving affordability. If you can make, bring products to people where they are and make them affordable, you're going to increase the likelihood that they engage. The third is a little more, I think, kind of moving into the public health realm, and this is something that we've only kind of recently started to do um, over the last kind of five, to, probably five to seven years. But there are some efforts around doing things like how do we how do we simplify the, the, the you know help somebody identify whether an item is healthy or not what what does it actually mean to for a food to say it was healthy or not and what we found was you know there were some interesting you know groups like Hannaford who have the five star system and there there were some grocers who had these kind of systems but what we tended to hear is that consumers were finding them confusing and we said Really, what a consumer wants to know is this, it's a binary decision. Is this healthy or not? Is it good for me? And well, it's funny you should actually use that term. So we, we did some work with some, some governmental agencies and some academic institutions who were sort of experts in this and created something called Great For You. Um, and the Great For You was essentially a standard that said, here is, here, is what, here is a standard that if you can cross this line, these things really are healthier for you. And a lot of it had to do with sodium and sugar and fat, um, but creating a standard around it. And so we created the Great For You program. And what's been interesting about that is, uh, and in fact, it was recently assessed um, by some independent agency to be the now the sort of best and most thorough um, healthy food assessment 
mechanism in the U.S., which was which was kind of interesting. Congrats, that's pretty neat. But what has been what has been interesting is it's become sort of created an entree for us then to you, you think about our accessibility, you think about the affordability, you think about now the ability to to help consumers kind of know by saying if you put the kind of great for you sticker or, or sign on something, you can now sort of couple that together and given some other technology platforms. It enables us to do things like, you know, work with a Humana around a healthy eating uh, program that, that used to be called Vitality under their Vitality banner, now called Undergo 365, but allows them to, to, to go to their members and say, you know, if you go to a Walmart and buy great for you items, uh, we're going to actually, we're going to help you. We're going to fund part of that. We're going we're gonna to do a discount, you know, fund a discount of 5, 10, 15, up to 50% on the purchase of those items. Uh, and what we found was it's hard to execute those kinds of programs unless you have somebody who can bring scale from an accessibility perspective, whether the underlying products are actually affordable. And if you have a mechanism to actually help a plan or an employer determine what's healthy or not. So that's, I'd say those, it's those things that we've really been kind of focusing in on because we think now you kind of bring that together in a more robust way and continue to try to find ways to lower price on those items, um, we think that's actually the way you get people to, to improve their health, not by restricting options, but by actually by increasing options and making those options that you think are the best, the most affordable. Right. Right. Well, I imagine it also just does good things for the local community if you're buying apples and everything else. Yes, um, certainly. The I want to talk to you about the affordability bit for a second, because as, as much as we try and keep people healthy, occasionally they do need care. Yep. Uh, and if Walmart's known for anything, it's known for prices. And I think we know in the traditional healthcare industry, the single greatest barrier to access is that people can't afford the care. Um, and, and they're reluctant to go in. What about Walmart on the care delivery side in terms of, you know, I think we, we know about the $4 generics, but in terms of primary care or labs or anything else you could do in a store? Yeah, so you know it's been interesting, and I think what I, what I can say is uh, maybe I'll sort of give you the conclusion first, and then sort of talk to you a little bit. The conclusion is, I think the next year you're going to see a lot of interesting things coming from us because I think that we've been on a journey, and that sometimes you have to kind of take the journey before you you know before you arrive. And so right. the, the journey that's been interesting, and, and even some of this has been sort of more, there have been, you know, even some recent announcements where what we've, we've I think we've been intentionally just quiet. We don't, we, 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 we're out trying, we're doing things, we're trying things, we're trying to see what the reaction is. So we think, you know, uh, three, four years ago, we actually pivoted out of the, out of what we consider to be the traditional retail clinic model and moved into a full primary care model we launched what's now called the Walmart Care Clinics, uh, which are now operating in three states in Texas and in Georgia and South Carolina. And and we're delivering full primary care. And we say primary care, it's not just sort of walk up acute care where it's strep, strep throat, pink eye, um, back to school physicals, but you actually have individuals who are diabetic who can come in and use the venue as a, as a, as the place where they help get their diabetes managed or, um, the you know or you know whatever their sort of chronic illness supported they can get access to wellness services so we did that right separately um, you, you sort of mentioned we we announced a little more than a year and a half ago a joint venture with Quest Diagnostics around a, a new sort of leveraging some capabilities they had some capabilities we had a new approach to improving consumer access to 
health screening. So it allows you to get access to labs and diagnostic solutions, but also in those venues, you can do more health screening events. So it might be more like a health risk assessment, or it could be something specialized like sleep health assessments or other things. We, in the last few years, you know, we're sort of quiet with two partners, started testing full dental services at retail. We have been sort of running hearing services at retail out of our SAMS clubs and kind of assessing how that works. The most recent announcement is uh, we have launched in uh, Texas uh, it, with, with uh, Beacon Health. We're running, uh, uh, doing a kind of interesting test around behavioral health. Right now in our stores in about 2,500 locations, we have a platform running called Healthcare Begins Here, where we have insurance agents who are there and can help educate consumers on, health, on their health insurance options and enroll them in a wide array of Medicare plans, public exchange plans, and the like. All those were sort of done and, and you know, independent of one another. And what I would say is that the, the net result is this, and a lot of it was to see, you know, how do consumers react to those kinds of services delivered at retail? The short answer is they react in a, in a significant and almost overwhelming way. I mean, even, you know, the, if, the, probably the biggest fact on the dental side, what we've seen is when we would open up, when one of our partners would open up these dental clinics, the volume ramped at roughly twice the rate of what they would have traditionally seen in their non-Walmart settings. Um, so that what it told us is the demand was there, the need was there, you know, ha you know, bringing these kind of services closer to where people are as opposed to making them kind of seek them out, there's enormous opportunity. And so the, the sort of, you know, the next iteration is to say, okay, we've, we've started to do these things. How do we, one, start to scale them? Two, how do we actually start to think about ways in which we can integrate them and operate them in a cohesive way much more effectively and efficiently? Um, and so there's more to come there, but I think it's, uh, um, we're entering, entering a, an interesting time. That's great. I mean, it'll be exciting to see what happens in, in 2019. I think we really are uh, in the era of retail healthcare, and it's uh, uh, good to hear about all the experiment, experiments you're doing. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, in addition to being one of the world's largest companies, uh, you're one of the largest private employers at Walmart, yep. uh, which means you provide healthcare for well over a million people, and you've uh, made news over the years for doing innovative things there. Um, Talk to me about the Centers of Excellence program and, sure. and what you're learning from that. Well, I mean, I, I, what I would say is let me kind of probably step back and tell you the, the reality. And th this point is one which the, the more I sort of think about it, quite frankly, the, the sort of more I get fired up, which is when we sort of look at the data and we, we look at variation in quality and you look at how much inappropriate um, ineffective care is being delivered in the market today. Based on our assessment, we'd say, you know, it, it appears as if it's it's not unreasonable to say that a third of what we spend on health care is wasted, meaning it's it's spent on care that was inappropriate or ineffective. It was spent on care that, that wouldn't have been needed if we had actually been yeah. focused. Maybe, on, and maybe even harmful. Uh, and, and, and probably harmful, yeah. It's, and, so you start yeah. to do that math and you say a third. And some people, for some reason, that doesn't resonate. You, then you go back and say, okay, to the extent we're spending 18% of our national gross domestic product on healthcare, if you're telling me a third of what we spend is actually inappropriate, wasteful, ineffective, and generates no benefit, that's basically saying 6% of our entire GDP 
you could go out into a parking lot and set on fire and get more benefit from it than we're getting today. You'd at least get heat and light. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so as a nation and society, we, I'm, I'm surprised that we're not up in arms. Like in, in, in the way that we're up in arms about other things that seem far more trivial than that. But, and, and, but that, that sort of reality is what has driven, I think, for us the Center's Excellence, which was this recognition that there was a lot of inappropriate care occurring there was a lot of really poor quality care occurring, and I, you know, and I, in some ways, I will. I'm gonna. This will sound like I'm going on a rant against physicians, and and it's really not. I actually don't know that today we can fully hold providers accountable because there's very little visibility on there in in terms of performance. Most providers think they're delivering wildly high quality care that's wildly appropriate, but they don't have any mechanism to kind of compare their own performance to others typically. Um, but what we saw on the Cerner's Excellence. Um, was just striking results, that more than a third of the time, uh, individuals that were being um, sent to a center's excellence and being told when they were sent there that they needed a, uh, a spinal fusion uh, are being told that they don't, that there's another alternative physical therapy or whatever that might work. More than half the time that they're being sent for a hip or knee replacement, they don't need it. Uh, more than 80% of the time being sent for a stent, they don't need it. The data would indicate that we don't have centers of excellence today on maternity care, that uh, maybe 90% of the C-sections and inductions we do are unnecessary. Um, the cancer one is the one that is the most striking to me. Um, there, there's sort of two numbers there. One is 10% of our associates who were sent to our, our cancer center of excellence at Mayo were actually being told that they had a diagnosis that was so wildly off as to be criminal. It was either that they were diagnosed with cancer, sent there and being told you actually don't have cancer, or that the cancer diagnosis is something completely different. So we're treating people. We're giving them chemo or radiation or whatever when they may not have cancer. That's right. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the worst one. Was, and then the next is there were a full 30% of people that maybe the diagnosis was right, but the treatment was so wildly off. They're being told they need six months of chemo. They only need six weeks. They're told they need chemo, radiation, and a drug. They only needed the drug. And so it, and it's like every single thing we look into, it's like it's the same number, 30, 50, 80 percent inappropriate. And so for us, um, that's what the Centers of Excellence have taught us. The challenge of the Center of Excellence is they don't really fundamentally scale. At the end of the day, we, we believe there have got to be providers at the local level who are high value and that we should be steering our associates to use those providers. And to the extent we can, we should be educating and informing the other providers so they can start to up their game and so that we can have more providers be truly high value. And so that's really uh, a lot of the work now that our, that our own uh, plan is doing is moving into what, we're, I, I, what I sort of call optimized network world, which says it's not, we're no longer thinking about networks built on health systems that say, I prefer this health system over another. And certainly not networks that are built on just price. Well, I'm going to drive you to use this health system over that one because this health system agreed to a rate reduction. Instead, what you're actually going to do is how, how can you begin to, at the provider level, maybe at the practice level, say, who are the, who are the physicians and the practices delivering the most appropriate care at the highest quality, at the lowest total cost? That's who should get the volume. How do we reconstruct our approach to networks to actually enable that to happen? And so I think the centers of excellence have been wildly successful, but what the, the, the in some ways the downside is it's taught us, it, it, it made us realize that this, this situation that I sort of described earlier is actually much worse than we had imagined. 
and so now if you know it's it's sort of caused uh um it's it's sort of caused an avalanche of source to kind of push us in that direction and say we we can't you know we spend four and a half billion dollars on benefits for our associates we spend another billion and a half roughly on workers comp and disability so i'd, I'd say in total we spend about six billion dollars on physicians and drugs you're you're a good size health plan yeah i mean it's yeah absolutely with you know with with over one million people on the plan you know fully covered that's that's huge so i think the the next generation for us you know is this kind of network approach and what we'd say is certainly there are other things around um trying to drive behavior change that certainly we are focused on but but you know as as uh, lisa woods and Adam Stavisky and the team there on the benefit side will say I mean, if you're telling me that just by trying to drive people to high value providers, I can, I can pull out a billion dollars of spend. Uh, let's focus. Let's focus some energy there, because the result is not only do you reduce spend. More importantly, is what you described earlier, Sam. If somebody's getting the, if somebody's getting an unnecessary knee replacement, think about the impact that's having on their health and life. They're they're out of work for a while. Um, the recovery is hard. Um, uh, and so, okay, well, you know, we actually are going to, you know, if we can sort of drive to high value providers, it's not just lowering costs. It's actually more importantly going to improve health. So, uh, that's where a lot of our focus is today. That's great. And how do your associates like it? You know, on the centers, it's, it's actually interesting on the centers of excellence. It's, it's been a home run. Um, it, you know, in fact, what we hear back from them is, Wow, you know, because we, we build expectations with our centers that when we send you an associate, we expect you to take care of them, right? And so uh, they do, you know, the idea of coordinate all their appointments for them so they don't have to have six different days. It's like do it all in one day when they show up. Um, and so what we tend to hear is, well, this was a heck, you know, not only, not only you know, for an associate, um, if you use a COE, there's no out-of-pocket cost. Um, so one, it's cost savings. But two, the experience is just so much better. Um, and so one of the things we hear is like, why can't my own doctor or hospital operate the way these centers of excellence do? Now, the reality is part of the reason they can't, or it's hard, is you know, we're able to hold them directly accountable. Um, and, but, but Walmart doesn't have enough scale to go hospital by hospital, health system by health system, and say, if you don't treat our associates right, I'm going to you know, not allow our associates to use you. And that, that just doesn't sort of scale. But um, yeah, the reaction actually is unbelievably good. The only, the only, I don't, I don't want to call it a negative. The only downside is exactly what I described earlier. It's associates saying, are you telling me I actually have to fly to Cleveland uh, University Hospital to get this? Why can't I go to the, you know, I'm, I, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Are you telling me there's no one in Tulsa? That could do this for me. That's the only deal. Is that you do hear associates say that I would have preferred to do this closer to my home if I could, but um, the experience overall was wonderful. And you know, thank you. That's great. Well, and, and hopefully it spurs somebody in Tulsa to get to get better at it. That's the goal. Um, as you get more and more of these, uh, Marcus, we'll wrap up here. Uh, we could talk about all of this stuff all day, but we'll wrap up with the question I ask every guest, which is, if you had all the time, space, money influence in the world, uh, what would be the one thing you'd do to change healthcare? Um, I think if I had all the money in the world, I don't know if I would would say time. I, I would want to do it immediately and not take a whole lot of time to do it. But if I had all the money and resources in the world, I think the one thing I'd focus on is how do we actually 
enable individuals um, to 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 understand and know what their what their health status is. That uh, when I, I look today, it's it's ridiculously hard to get a cholesterol test. It's it's actually surprisingly difficult to know what your blood pressure is. Um, the way the kind of system and process works today around monitoring and diagnostics and labs and those kind of things um, is, is difficult. And I and and I think this 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 reality that it because it is so difficult, it actually makes us makes it very difficult for us as individuals to engage in our health more fully because we just don't we don't really sort of know what's going on and and we don't there's nothing that would sort of tell us that we need to do anything about it. And and I use the analogy of our cars that we know more about the health of our cars than we know about the health of ourselves. And and the reason for that is car manufacturers invested lots of money in putting censoring all over the vehicles that tell us when, you know, tires are deflated or something the engine is is starting to kind of wear down. And we've got oil change places all over the place that when you bring your car in to change oil, they plug it into a computer and you can get a readout of 50 things that describe the health of your vehicle. And and the result is now the average, you know, vehicle is on the road for way more years. I think it's almost twice the number of years today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And it's largely due to the ability to to know the health of our vehicle and then act on it. And so I think about a world in which um, in people's homes or on in their on their hand or in their hand, um, we're able to kind of know what their health is, would know all the kind of biometric realities and know the the lab and sort of diagnostic realities. Um, and certainly we're moving in that direction. You think about the Apple Watch uh, and the recent technological improvements there with the addition of EKG type capabilities there. But this idea, if, if I had all the money and all the resources, I'd put in everybody's hands and in everybody's home a full full lab diagnostic and health monitoring capabilities that allow us on a daily basis or on a you know constant basis to, to know what our kind of health reality and our health status is. Um, because what I believe is um, an informed consumer becomes an engaged consumer in the healthcare perspective. And that I, I do not believe, often I sort of hear uh, consumer, healthcare consumers characterizing the U.S. as being kind of lazy or stupid. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think certainly as Americans, we're not lazy. It's the exact opposite. We work, we work hard. And secondarily, we're not stupid. We actually are wildly informed and attempt to become informed. It's just healthcare is it's difficult for us to become informed about our own health because of the way um, all the, the, the sort of lab diagnostics and monitoring solutions are kind of hidden behind the curtain. And so if I had, again, all the money and all the resources, I'd, I'd make that ubiquitous because I think if you can help people know where 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 their health is and what, you know, what their health status is, um, that's the start to a, a, a better path to health. So that's that's what I'd do. Marcus, thank you very much. A pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring guests like Comcast, Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. 
For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.